All right. So uh, if you brought your, brought your Bibles, I'm actually going to teach uh, through, I'm going to teach through a passage of Scripture this time. This will be more like uh, preaching of the Word than it is like a lecture. Last two were more like a lecture. And this, uh, in this, uh, so our, our first two sessions, we dealt with the true story of the missional God, which then uh, framed for us the mission of the church, right? And gave us confidence in this God who undergirds us and providentially guides us, empowers us. <clears throat> And then in our last session, we talked about the true story of the people of God, the true story of the missional church. And we showed that God does his work through his people, uh, beginning with Israel and moving on through to the church. <clears throat> right now, I want to talk about the true foundation of the missional church and the missional pastor. And I'm really going to focus on the relationship between... Uh, uh, a planter and pastor in his Bible. Um, so I'm going to go from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and read that text. So Paul says to Timothy, But you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me <clears throat> at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. <clears throat> so by this point in Paul's life, he's been imprisoned, Flogged five times, beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked, he's gone hungry, he's been cold. He bore the marks of crucifixion in his body. If you were to take Paul's shirt off and see how it had been torn to pieces, it would look like Jesus' torso looked like uh, as he was being crucified. He, Paul's in a Roman prison. <clears throat> Don't think an American prison, you know, where guys are kind of lifting weights, watching porn, you know, going to the cafeteria three times a day, slipping on a cot with a pillow and blankets, air conditioning, heat. You know, he was in a, most likely in a hole in the ground, 20 feet in the ground, with no stairs out, uh, no bed to speak of, no toilet. He's sitting in the middle of his own excrement, basically. And he was cold. Uh, in the letter, he actually asked Timothy to bring his coat to him. Um, and so in the middle of this situation, when he writes Timothy, he's looking at the end of his life. Paul is, and he knows it. And he's writing to one of the few men, and one of the most important, maybe the most important in his mind, who will carry on the ministry that he's dedicated his whole life to. <clears throat> and so he thinks really hard about what he's going to say to Timothy. And then, especially in this particular passage, there's a really powerful point he tries to make to Timothy. And I think the gravitas of this message, I think, is increased by the situation that Paul's in as he writes the letter. 
He's only got a few things he can say when he puts some stuff on parchment. He's getting ready to die. And he's handed off to his younger son in the ministry. And this is what he chooses to say. And so I think it lends this sort of depth and power uh, to it. And Paul's answer to Timothy, Paul's words to Timothy here, um, reveal to us how Christianity has survived for 2,000 years and how it will survive for 2,000 more if the Lord tarries. And I think the central proposition, the main thing Paul is driving at in this passage that we're getting ready to work through <clears throat> is, Timothy, you are going to... The, the, the context of Christian ministry and life is opposition. And that opposition is going to come from within and from without. And if you're going to weather it, you had better build your life and ministry on the sturdy foundation that is the Word of God, or you will never make it. And so that's central proposition. I think so. I think Paul basically has, believe it or not, three points he makes that unfold that thesis. And <laughs> so I know that's shocking. The suspense was nearly unbearable. How many points will he have from his text? It turns out it's three. Um, so the first point he makes is from verses 10 through 12, and that point is going to be that the context of Christian ministry is one of opposition. Let's read those verses again. But you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. <clears throat> yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so what Paul's saying to Timothy here is he's saying, listen, imitate my pattern of life. You, you saw this, Timothy. I mean, the cities that Paul lists here were very close to Timothy's hometown. Timothy probably you know, may very well have actually, actually seen with his own eyes Paul being uh, persecuted. If not, he knew about it. This happened in his backyard. And Paul was saying, listen, so Christ has led me and undergirded me and shaped me and made me into the type of man that, by his grace could live through these persecutions and live the Christian life the way that it was just listed, he'll do the same thing for you. Um, and then he promises him, he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Hebrews chapter 11. So my parents paid me to memorize Scripture when I was a kid. If I needed money, um, I could do chores or I could memorize Scripture, and the amount of money they gave me was greater if I memorized Scripture than if I did chores. And I memorized a ton of Scripture when I was a kid. Kids can memorize, man. Are you kidding me? I mean, they can flat out throw it out. So I memorized the chapter of Hebrews in a few days because I needed 20 bucks. And uh, it's been a really rich... They also, when I hit puberty, they paid me to memorize Proverbs 7 <laughs> about the wicked woman. Um, <laughs> they did. I still have it memorized, man. You know, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm looking back laughing because <laughs> now I, I see their strategy. I, you know, I see what they did there. Um, but uh, Hebrews 11, in this passage, you know, the writer of Hebrews gives this sort of long list of heroes of the faith. And in the first 28, 29 verses, <clears throat> this, the stories might take up anywhere from a verse to several verses. But when he gets to the last 10 verses, it's like he puts it in hyperspeed and he lists five or six stories per verse for each verse, and just races. And in those last 10 verses, you really have two categories of people. Now, all of them, what's the same about everybody in those 10 verses is uh, their faith, that they're actually heroes of the faith, that they trusted God, and God is honoring them now, you know, 
two, four, six thousand years later. <clears throat> What's different is the how it panned out in their lives. And for half of those guys, the first half of those ten verses, they actually got visible victory in this lifetime. And for the other half, they had no visible victory. And so there's this list. In fact, I'm going to turn to it for a minute. The first half of the list, you know, I mean, just won battles, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, subdued kingdoms. I mean, it's a pretty awesome list. And sometimes God glorifies himself through visible victory. If I apply this to church planning through churches that, boom, experience explosive growth. And sometimes God does it that way. And that does give him glory. Only he can make that happen. And he makes it happen in spite of the church planners that he uses to do it. But then sometimes that doesn't happen. And uh, let me read. I wanna, let me actually, I want to take that. I didn't plan to do this. I'm going to read those, those last uh, verses. <clears throat> Starting in verse 35b. Uh, Others, this is where the list takes a turn. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. The word there, Greek word is tumpanizo. They were kettle drummed. It's a way of torturing. They would strap them over a kettle drum so that there was a hard surface underneath them and they would beat them. So that there was a blow coming from the top that would not be absorbed by anything cushiony beneath it. So, and uh, they didn't accept deliverance, it said. So basically they could have quit on Jesus and they would have been delivered, but they didn't accept that. Because they were obtaining, they knew they'd get a better resurrection. That's a powerful statement. I can resurrect myself now by quitting or I can wait for a better resurrection, and we'll wait for the better one. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. Think about the prophet Jeremiah, one of God's greatest men, never saw victory. No explosive growth for his church plant. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Um, there's, that's Isaiah he's referring to, as far as we can tell. They, the, the word is that, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but other sources tell us that Isaiah was put inside of a hollow log and then sawed in half while he was still alive. That was his reward. That wasn't a big church plant. Um, <clears throat> they wandered. No, they <clears throat> were tempted, were slain with the sword, wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. It's like, the, it's like uh, for example, the, the opposite of the health and wealth teaching. Because of their great faith, God didn't reward them with health and wealth. Not, not in this lifetime. Health and wealth teaching confuses the not yet part of the kingdom with the already. There will be a day when we flourish and where there'll be everything in abundance. And where there'll be no want and no need. But we're in the in-between times between the first and the second coming. And God doesn't promise that in the now. He promises it in the later. And to confuse those two things really hurts, I think, the advance of the gospel. Of whom the world was not worthy, verse 38 says, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They never received all God's promises of blessings and abundance. That's for later. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So these people did this without even having received Christ. This was the, all these people that were listed before Christ even came. 
And, uh, and so sometimes the way God glorifies himself is by giving visible victory, and sometimes it's by not giving visible victory. And when you are in the midst of not having visible victory, hear, hear me really clearly, that is one of your greatest opportunities to treasure Christ. <clears throat> when everything else is taken away and you have him, then it becomes very clear that your joy and your strength comes from him and not from these other things. This is a poignant, powerful moment, God versus the gods. God versus the idols. Where is your joy? Is it in sex, money, power, comfort, the approval of other people, or is it in God himself? That was a rabbit trail, but I think a good one, you know, a worthwhile one. So back to the Timothy passage where Paul says to Timothy, listen, context of Christian ministry is one of opposition. Um, So now there's a hinge in the passage, which brings us to our second point. And that is going to be that the opposition you experience will be both from within the church and from without. Verse 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the, the evil men terminology in the scriptures generally almost always refers to, to, uh, to people who are outside of the believing community. <clears throat> the imposter language implies that this is a person who's pretending to be part of the believing community. You need to know this if you're going to be a pastor, church planner. The opposition you receive is not just going to be from outside of the church. Actually, almost always the most painful opposition comes from within the church and even off, sometimes from within the inner circle in your, in your church. Um, Judas was an imposter, classic imposter. There's going to be a lot of imposters, especially, I would say, in the deep south and in the south because we've had a cultural Christianity. So we have massive swaths of Christians who are unregenerate and are in churches. And uh, an imposter is somebody who kind of looks like a Christian, kind of talks like a Christian, and, uh, but is not a Christian, not regenerate. And uh, it's possible that somebody in this room is an imposter. I doubt it. But anytime you're speaking to a group of Christians, there's a really good chance that there's a Judas in there. I mean, our, our churches are full of unregenerate people. They're full of dead people, actually. The, the older churches tend to have... Like, let's say you have a church with 500 members. They would tend to have 150 attenders and 500 members because regenerate church membership was not that important. You just baptize kids when they turn four or five or six and because it's part of what you do. You know, you just baptize people and be a part of the club. Now, the healthier churches and the church plants, the ratio is the opposite. You'll have 500 attenders and only 150 members because we're once again taking membership seriously. Um... There's going to be imposters, so uh, I've got lots of stories I can tell here, but one one of the most graphic for me was early on in my ministry. So I started preaching regularly when I was about 18 years old, and I was uh, 20 or so when I was on staff at a church, and the Lord had really begun to bless the ministry. There was a youth, a student minister, no surprise. Uh, 20 years old, and, and that was kind of the option and was enjoying doing it, learning to preach the Word. And uh, we had built a ministry with, we were a very small town, about four or 500 people, uh, but we had about 100 youth coming to our weekly Wednesday night, which was basketball night. And in the middle of the night, it was a two hours in the gym, in the middle of it for 15 minutes, we locked it down and I preached the gospel. This was our outreach night. 
And we had uh, white, black, and Indian, basically. These were sort of the three kind of groups of uh, students from that town and surrounding areas. And uh, nothing like this in my county had it, that I know of had ever happened where you, had, you didn't have segregation. And there was a small number of people in this church who were infuriated, including a couple of powerful people. And I remember I was in the middle of this one night, <clears throat> just getting ready to preach. I got everyone to calm down. They're getting ready to sit down. And a man from the church who was a member, was a, a powerful man in the church. He was in his early 40s, probably. I was 20. Uh, pretty big guy, actually. And uh, he, he walked in. And I forget exactly what the number was, but he had counted how many black people were in the gym. And he gave the number. So he said something like this. He said, he said I've, and he said it loud enough that a good number of the kids heard it. He said, there's 19 niggers in this gym. And you're going to shut this damn gym down right now, and we're going to have a talk. So I had a decision, and uh, now, in retrospect, I, I wish I'd have gone ahead preaching, but my decision was to go ahead and deal with him. So uh, I said, guys, we're going to shut down early tonight. Sorry about this. We'll be doing the exact same thing next week. Be back here next week. I went and talked with him, and he, he and his wife came over to my house, and they were livid. They were furious. And they asked me why. I had black people in the gym and Indians, and I explained to them. I, I did drop some Revelation 5 in their head and let them know that this was the outworking of the gospel. And he said, and I'll, I'll never forget what the response was. If you want to minister to niggers, go work at a nigger church. You know, just that kind of antagonism and opposition. And so they tried to stage an overthrow for me to be fired. But the beautiful, now these stories don't always work out like this, but by God's grace, this church stood this man and a few other very powerful people in the church stood them down. It's the first time that they'd ever been stood down. And it was a real victory of the gospel. But only was that victory able to be seen because of the opposition. And so there's just surprising opposition that will, that will hit you from within and from without. And don't be surprised by it. Remind yourself when you're in the middle of it asking God, why, why is this going on? Why, I mean, this is defeat. You've already been promised that that's going to happen. You're going to experience real opposition from within and from without. You're going to be betrayed. But you'll never be betrayed worse than Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Because Jesus was actually the Son of God, the King of the universe. So whatever betrayal you receive, I mean, although it's awful in the moment, it doesn't compare to what Jesus, you know, had, had faced. Brings us to the third point where Paul basically says to Timothy that your foundation has got to be the unshakable Word of God. So let's read uh, verses 14 through 17. But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is Timothy. Build your ministry on the Word of God. Let it form the starting point, the trajectory, and the parameters of everything you do in ministry. And there's this fourfold uh, rhythm to but before we get to the fourfold rhythm, just look at the first part of verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is a funny translation in English. We use the best, kind of best word available, inspired. Uh, this word literally is all Scripture is God-breathed. It's theonoustos, God-breathed. It's a hapax legomena. It means uh, Paul made up a word. 
He wanted, to, he wanted to express something with such power. He wasn't willing to use words that were available. He, he made up a word. He coined a word, and it, God breathed. And we translate it inspired because it would be better, you know, expire, but expire has bad connotations. If someone's expired, it means they've died, or if food is expired, it means it's rotted. So we're going to go with a no on that as a translation. Spirated would be good. That means breathed out, but nobody knows what spiration means. It sounds like gyration. And so we translate it inspiration, but it better be translated as a phrase, God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. It's the very breath of God. God doesn't have bad breath. All of it is good. Every bit of God's word is, is good for us. And then he said, what is it good for? Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Doctrine, what is right? Uh, reproof, using it to show you where you've gone wrong. Correction, how to show you to get it back right, where you've gone off the path, how to get back on the path, and then instruction and in righteousness, how to stay on the path. That's what the Scripture is good for. And there would be other ways of showing the holistic, the way that Scripture is good for us holistically in every area of our life, but this is the way that Paul chose. You know, it tells you what's right, it tells you how you've gotten off the path, it tells you how to get back on the path, how to stay on the path. He's saying that Scripture should shape absolutely everything you do in your life and ministry. Because he says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's what Paul says. He said, you need to chart a course that is diametrically opposed to the evil men and the imposters. You need to expect opposition. You need to know it'll come from without, from within. And then you need to lash yourself to the word of God. And so church planners, let's apply this for just a moment. I'm basically finished teaching the passage. And let's apply this for a minute. <clears throat> You have got to find a way, no matter how intense your life is, and it is intense, if you're a seminary student, if you're a pastor, if you're a church planner, if you're a professor, you have so many things that will crowd your day, good things, but don't let the good things push out the better things, such as time in the Word and in prayer. And you have got to have a relationship with God through His Word. God's Word serves as both a bridge and a boundary. Uh, I'm going to focus on bridge right now. It's a bridge to him. It lets you know who he is and what he wants from you. And you have to carve out real space to immerse yourself in the Word of God. And everyone, when I say things like this, I know you're sitting here thinking, well, yes, obviously. But listen, man, you don't think you're the person it's going to happen to, but probably one out of every three people in this room, if it's proportionate to the way things happen in the real world, you won't be in ministry in five years because you will have cheated on your wife. You will have gotten addicted to porn. You will have quit because ministry got tough. But that's a whole lot less likely to happen if you have a real relationship with God through His Word. So what does that look like? Let me give you some examples of what, what you can do. Um, <clears throat> when you're alone with the Word. Because I, I think sometimes we don't know what to do with the Bible. We read it. But you, I mean, you're, you're captive to your culture and you've grown up with a short attention span because you've grown up in an electronic age and you don't know what to do with the Bible. You know what to do with Twitter. You know what to do with 140 characters. You know what to do with a Facebook post. You know what to do when watching ESPN when in order to keep your attention, they have to switch stories every 10 to 30 seconds or a Hollywood movie where they have to have images blitzing across the screen and MTV because our attention span has become shorter and shorter and shorter. You have no idea what to do with the Word of God unless somehow you've been able to get yourself out of your own cultural context. 
So what you need to do is you probably need to follow a pattern similar to what the early church fathers followed. They had something that they called a sacred reading of Scripture, Lectio Divina. And I'm going to give you a version of that that I think is a healthy evangelical version of that um, that'll help you think of what you need to do when you have your Bible with you. So I think you need to carve out space to practice sacred reading of the Scriptures every day. And I, I, my, my strong recommendation, unless your brain just doesn't function in the mornings, is that it be the very first thing you do so that it frames your whole day. Okay, so what does that sacred l- reading look like? For me, it is read, reflect, pray, obey. Okay? So when you read, I don't mean read once and read quickly. <clears throat> you figure out your own pattern, but I mean read slowly and maybe read several times. So you read, and then you reflect. You sit in silence, and you reflect on God's Word. Those are the very words of God. Reflect on those words. And then you pray the Scriptures. You take the very Scriptures that were just taught to you, and in some form or fashion, you pray it back to God, affirming that it's true. And, and maybe praying an application to your life. And then you obey So that portion lasts throughout the rest of the day. That you actively are trying to keep in your mind your sacred reading. And throughout the day, obey that text. So pray, read, reflect, pray, obey. So I have a thing that I do that you may think is kooky. And a lot of conservatives think this kind of thing is kooky. Fine. I imagine when I sit down to read Scripture and then pray it back and reflect on it, reflect on it and pray it back, I imagine that the Lord, Christ Himself, is sitting in the room with me. Right? He is the Word. And I imagine Him speaking the words to me. It reminds me that He's present with me and His Word is, in many ways, His presence with us. And it carries with it an authority, doesn't it? So the problem with reading for us is most people didn't ever have a Bible to read. And most Christians in the world can't read. We're not even aware of that. We think the only way you can have a relationship with God is to read. Most people can't even read. Um, The problem with reading, and I'm saying that you ought to read the Bible, so I'm saying, no, I'm not saying not to. I'm saying the problem with reading is it's easy for us to try to master the Bible as an object when we're reading gain mastery over it. That's what you learn to do is gain mastery over a text. And then we begin to treat it like an object. Whereas a live voice, God's speaking it to you, or you imagining him in the room speaking it to you as you read it, there's the Lord of the universe commanding you from his word. And so for me, imagining him in the room with me allows me to recognize this word for what it is, not an object. But the living words of God pierces even down to the bone and the marrow. So God's word piercing me and coming to me and at me with commanding authority and life-giving power. So get alone with the word of God and let it read you. Let it speak to you and let it read you. I highly recommend that you memorize scripture. And I got out of that habit for about 15 years. Did very little scripture memory from the time I was 21 or so until I was about 35. 
And I don't know what your pattern for scripture memory will be, but when I was 35, here's what I did. I teach systematic theology. <clears throat> for every doctrine that I teach, I've got six or eight what I call chair texts, really big, important texts that help us with that doctrine. They're anywhere from three to four verses long to, uh, I don't know, 12 or 15 verses long. And I actually determined that I'm going to memorize all of those chair passages. It hasn't gone as quickly as I'd like. I've got about 70 passages, and I've only memorized a little bit less than half of them so far in four or five years. Um, but that, for me, has been just of inestimable value. And so my read, reflect, pray, obey often is actually in those verses, and my reading of Scripture is, is my repeating memory verses, memory passages, and then I reflect on it and pray, pray and obey. Um, and then I think too with the scriptures that um, <clears throat> whatever you encounter during your day if you can train your mind to ask a question when you're operating in the arts listening to music or watching a movie or uh, if you're oh, doing whatever it is you're doing working workplace, whatever it is you're doing. Ask, how in the world is this arena of human activity, what did God design it to be like? How has it been derailed by sin? And how can I redirect it to Christ? And so this helps us to really recognize God as a commanding Lord under whom we should bring, every, bring everything under, his, under submission to Him. And uh, the means of doing that is knowing His Word. You can't know God any better than you can know His Word. I mean, this knowledge of God comes... Uh, primarily through His Word. We can know God some from, from nature, but because of what sin has done to us, we don't recognize Him in nature. And we have to have the Word of God as a lens helping us to see Him clearly in nature. So knowledge of God really just comes from His Word, His spoken Word. We're getting ready to have a Q&A in just a moment. I'm going to pray a brief prayer now <clears throat> that God will bless you, bless everything you put your hand to, make you men and women of the Word, and... Uh, just use you as a vital part of his uh, missional church. And then we'll, we'll, uh, Shane will come up and lead us and, and coach us for a moment, and then we'll have a, a panel discussion after that. Father, in the name of your Son, we uh, come to you. You've been with us, present with us yesterday and today in this room with us, uh, seeing straight through us and knowing us better than we could ever know ourselves. your eyes like a burning flame of fire. See straight through us. You know who we are. You know what you've called us to. You know our weaknesses and our shortcomings. Lord, we pray that you uh, make something of our lives for your glory and for your sake. Pray that you bless everything these men and women put their hand to for your glory. If you will, that you undergird them by your presence, your power, that you shape them by your word, that you make your name great, that you increase your renown, that you glorify yourself through these men and women, and especially in their work through your church. In the name of your son we pray, amen.